While David hides himself from the king's wrath, Saul's intention for the murder of innocent David are now confirmed, paving the way for the sorrowful separation of Jonathan and David. This is the 43rd sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, and Exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from Samuel in chapter 20, Samuel in chapter 20, beginning in verse 24, beginning in verse 24, through verse 34. By the inspiration of God, the prophet writes, So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon was come, the king sat down to eat meat. And the king sat upon his seat, as at other times, even upon a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, and David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul spake not anything that day, for he thought something had befallen him. He is not clean, surely he is not clean. It came to pass on the morrow, which was the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said unto Jonathan his son, Wherefore cometh not the son of Jesse to meet, neither yesterday nor today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, Let me go, I pray thee, for our family hath a sacrifice in the city, and my brother, he hath commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favor in thine eyes, let me get away, I pray thee, and see my brethren. Therefore he cometh not unto the king's table. And Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said unto him, Thou son of the perverse, rebellious woman, Do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion and unto the confusion of thy mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the ground, thou shalt not be established, nor thy kingdom. Wherefore, now send and fetch him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul his father and said unto him, Wherefore shall he be slain? What hath he done? And Saul cast a javelin at him to smite him, whereby Jonathan knew that it was determined of his father to slay David. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did eat no meat the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had done him shame. Paul writing to the elder at Ephesus, Timothy, in 2 Timothy and chapter 3, beginning in verse 10 through verse 13. By the same spirit, the apostle says this, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, Manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch and Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. But out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now having sealed his covenant with David, sealing the covenant for himself and his posterity with David, Jonathan now takes his place beside his father to see exactly what his father's intentions are toward David. And while this interaction takes place, David, of course, 
cunningly is hiding himself from the wrath of Saul. And David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon was come, the king sat down to meet, and when he sat down to meet, as other times, he was seated by the wall, and Jonathan arose, and we see David's place here is empty because he's hiding in the field. Now, there are a number of things to be considered here. First, David is hiding himself. This was a cunning strategy, which teaches us that depending upon the circumstances, especially when there's wrath and rebellion and tyranny and murderous intentions against the righteous, hiding is appropriate. There's a time to hide. Of course, as we've already learned, there's a time to fight, there's a time to run, and there's a time to hide. In times of extreme tyranny, therefore, it is wise, depending on the circumstances, depending on the opportunities that God gives, it sometimes is very wise to keep yourself inconspicuous. Now, the church, in normal days, the church should be conspicuous. The church should have his witness in the world. But when there's extreme tyranny, because of the church's lack of witness in the culture, there are times during great and extreme cases of tyranny, it may be wise to keep yourself inconspicuous. And this is what David was doing. He's hiding. That means we are to be careful as to how we operate. And I say this in our modern day. We are to be at this point in history because the church is targeted by the wicked. It always been targeted by the wicked because the wicked want to be as God and the only witness against them being God is the church. We need to be very careful how we use social media how we use telephone conversations, how we use public pronouncements, and any other venue that may put the church in the spotlight for the wicked to compromise the church or to target the church unnecessarily. We are to speak truth, but we are to be very careful. Solomon tells us this in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 12. When the righteous men do rejoice, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise... When the wicked are risen up, a man is hidden. And this is a practical strategy as well as an eschatological point. For when the wicked rise to power, a man is hidden. In fact, this is speaking about the Christ. When the wicked are rising up, Christ is hiding himself. And this is the way that God chastises a nation, by removing his restraining hand from the wicked. God lets the wicked, when they no longer want to adhere to the law of God, when they no longer want to listen to the word of the church, the witness of the church, and when the church fails to bring that witness to the nation, God lets the wicked rise in power as a form of judgment and chastisement against the people who have forgotten him, whether it's the church or the nation. We are living under that period of time when a man is hidden. And yet, the etymology of the word that Solomon uses for hidden has a double meaning. On the one hand, it can be used in the sense of concealment and hiding. So in one sense, the Hebrew word can be used as a time of concealment or a time of hiding. But when it is used another way, and this is the beauty of the Hebrew language, when it's used another way, it can also mean that which is sought for. And so it could read in this way. When the wicked rise, not only is a man hidden, but... In another way, a man is sought for. This also makes perfect sense since when the wicked bear rule over the people of God, the people of God are looking for the Lord. He is being sought for. He's being sought for for deliverance. What are we doing now? We're seeking for the Lord of heaven and earth for deliverance. 
because the wicked has risen up against us. So what are we doing? We're hiding and seeking. And this double use of the word is very appropriate, especially in David's situation, since David is initially hiding from Saul, while at the same time, he is seeking for God to deliver him. He is seeking for God to intervene in this time of great adversity, in this time of great tyranny. Now, of course, as we've seen, David is a great type of Christ. So, in another way, when David is used as a type of Christ under the tyranny of Saul, the righteous are hidden, while at the same time it is David that is sought for, in the same way that Christ initially hides himself when the wicked rise. You see, what the people needed was not Saul, but David. Under the time of tyrannical rule, David was the deliverer. The people would eventually, as we shall see, when 600 men would then gravitate toward David when he's hiding, when he's hiding and fleeing from Saul, it is David that's being sought for. And this is why Christ in his mysterious providence lets things deteriorate to such a degree that all seems lost. Because that's where we need to go. We need to be to that point. The nation, America, the world, even the church, needs to recognize that unless they speak truth, and deliver the witness of Christ purely and faithfully, God will not deliver them. So, what does God do? He chastises the nation, He chastises the church, to the point when all things seem lost, that deterioration is so complete, so systemic, so that everything seems lost, and at that point, when people are brought to the humility that God would have them to be in, then, perhaps they will call upon him in their distress, knowing that only God can deliver. Not a political leader, not an economic system, but God himself. Now let me hasten to say that the intervention that God ordains is not a rapture. It's not a get me out of here kind of thing. But rather a deliverance where God empowers his church, whereby he empowers his saints and causes them granting to them great courage, great tenacity and resolve, where he causes them to rise up as the judges of Israel would rise up in their day in the same way that Joshua and Samuel did in ancient Israel. This is the intent of the psalmist when he calls upon God to arise for the deliverance and protection of his people. And that's what we're calling upon God to do now. To arise, to rise up. Notice Psalm 3, verse 7, Psalm 7, Psalm 9, Psalm 10, Psalm 44, Psalm... 44, 23, and 26. Notice what he says. Arise, Yahweh. O Jehovah, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone that has broken the teeth of the ungodly. That is what God does when he rises up. Notice Psalm 7, 6. Arise, O Lord, in thine anger. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies and awake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. Arise, O Lord, let me not be put to shame. Let man not prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thine hand. Forget not the humble. Awake, why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise, cast us not off forever. Arise for our help and redeem us for thy mercy's sake. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 60 verse 2. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness to people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. That is what we wait for. But as we wait for the Lord to rise up, we work. Secondly, we see that Jonathan here will intercede for David. 
And this is what the saints are to do for one another. They intercede for the safety of each other. And not only the safety of the saints in America, but the safety of the saints everywhere. The Church of Jesus Christ exists throughout the nations. And so in the face of the tyrant's assault, as he assaults the people of God, we must pray for one another. So I ask you then, how often are you praying for one another to become that tenacious judge? How often do we pray passionately for God to arise, knowing that the way He arises, the way He rises up, is through His church, through His body? Jonathan understood the severity of the situation that David faced. I'm not so sure the Church of Jesus Christ understands the severity of the situation that we face. Because if they did, they'd stop playing church and become the church. Sadly, the church in America, that church which should have been the city on a hill, that church has forgotten her her purpose in life, her purpose in history. Because if they really understood what was going on, there would be such an outcry, such a resistance, such a unification that things then would change. Thirdly, Jonathan is placing himself as a mediator in harm's way. Remember, at one time, in, the, in, in order to save face, Saul was determined to kill his own son, and we see this happening even in this passage as well. He was determined to kill his own son for disobeying a simple wicked mandate. It wasn't even a law. And knowing that Saul could kill his own son, Jonathan knew this. He still, nevertheless, places himself in harm's way for David. How will we fare in that regard? Will we place ourselves in harm's way for one another? Will we stand up for one another? Will we stand up in truth for one another? Jonathan did it. He acted as as a mediator. A great type of Christ here as well. Fourthly, Saul takes his place. I find this fascinating. God doesn't just write things and tell us things just because it's a good narrative. He tells us things because they mean something. Spiritually, they mean something. Saul is taking his place at the table, but he's sitting by the wall. Now, presumably, his back would be toward the wall so that no one probably because he was so paranoid, the narcissist that he was, thought that maybe someone would come from behind him and assassinate him, so he puts his back by the wall, sitting by the wall. But I believe there's a bigger lesson here which touches upon his wickedness and unwillingness to obey the law of God. You see, whenever God uses the term wall, he is referring at many times, referring to the law of God. Notice what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, 13 and following. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometime were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. James tells us, that the law is likened to a mirror so that when we look into its look into its mirror, we look into the law, it exposes our faults so that we might be rectified by its commandments. Notice what he says. 
But be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. But if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgotten what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, notice, the law of liberty, not being a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed. So we see the analogy of the wall in the case of good king Hezekiah as well. When Hezekiah prayed, he turned his face to the wall in a moment of doubt and fear, fearing that his life would be ended. He turned to the wall. He didn't have his back to the wall. He turned to the wall and he called upon God for mercy in 2 Kings chapter 20. When Nehemiah sought to build the wall, he was in fact reestablishing God's authority for Israel by the building of the wall, or metaphorically speaking, by the law. After his completion, Ezra the priest declared the law of God afresh to the people of God. This is found in Nehemiah chapter 8. Notice, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women, and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. Now what's so interesting about the duration of the project of of Nehemiah's building of the wall, which again was symbolic, the reestablishment of the authority of God, the law of God, was that the wall was completed in 52 days. And that is not an arbitrary number. Because there are 52 weeks in a year, which is synonymous with the 52 weeks of the year, which points to the phrase, the year of the Jubilee, the year of the Lord. It was that Jubilee year, that Jubilee celebration, when God liberated the people from their debt. It is synonymous with freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from the dominion of sin, freedom from the dominion of the grave, from hell and even a freedom from the tyranny of men. The year of Jubilee symbolizes total and comprehensive liberation provided that the law of God is established in the land. Isaiah calls it the year of recompense and the year of God's redeemed people. Notice Isaiah 34, 8. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompense for the controversy of Zion. In Isaiah 63, 4, we read this. For the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed is come. Now Saul, on the other hand, not like good king Hezekiah turning his face to the wall, nor like Nehemiah building the wall, but rather Saul, on the other hand, had his back to the wall as if he turned his back symbolically on God's law, desiring rebellion rather than obedience. And we know that from from what he's done. No longer desiring to obey God, he was doing everything out of his own mind. And once he turned his back to the law, once anyone turns their back to the law of God, they are unable to judge. Saul was unable to judge for himself. He was unable to judge himself since only by the law can we judge ourselves and judge others. And yet, here's the king, unable to judge righteously. This is the situation that Jonathan finds himself in, within the king's quarters during the celebration of the new moon. Now that's significant as well. The timing of the feast is also significant. It was during the festival of the new moon where the trumpet of deliverance and redemption was to be blown. 
God explains the significance of the new moon in regard to the liberation of Joseph from Egypt in Psalm 81 and verse 3 and following. Note the emphasis on the law and the relief from Joseph's burden. Blow up the trumpet in the new moon in the time appointed on our solemn feast day. For this was a statute for Israel and a law of the God of Jacob. This he ordained in Joseph for a testimony when he went out to the land of Egypt where I heard a language that I understood not. I removed his shoulder from the burden. There's the liberation. His hands were delivered from the pots. Notice, every time the the trumpet was blown, it was liberation. So this new moon feast was a day of liberation and yet it was not. It was a great day of tyranny. It It was hypocritical. And now we can see the hypocrisy of Saul in this feast. He wants everybody to come to the New Moon Festival. He wants everyone to see that he, as the great tyrant, was the liberating force of the people, and yet he was not. So he sets up what we might call a communion table during a religious celebration, hoping to show just how religious he was and just how liberating he was. He was a man of the people, but this is an empty exercise since he is still in abject rebellion to God and his law in his murderous intent to kill God's anointed. So while he is worshipping, while he is believing himself to be the liberator and the protector of the people of Israel, he is scheming to kill God's anointed. Secondly, not only does Saul sit with his back to the wall, he sits upon his seat. In other words, he's seated proudly upon his throne signifying that he still believes himself king. He still believes himself the legitimate authority, the legitimate king over Israel, and yet this too is a lie because this man lives a lie. And yet in his narcissistic idealism, he labors to show to all Israel that he is still God's man. He's still God's man. This brings up another point, number three. Saul's narcissism is a trait to be found in all unregenerate men and women to one degree or another. For Saul, his narcissism was terminal, toxic, and destructive. And by his narcissism, he neglected his covenant responsibility whereby he was to order Israel's societal structure Godward. Instead, he was more concerned with his own position of power rather than the well-being of Israel. Now, he talked all about being a man of the people. He talked all about the safety of the people. But it was a lie. He was concerned with his own position of power. Now while he posited that his intent was the well-being of Israel, it was obvious that it was not. In the same way, tyrannical governments tell its people, as we've heard it throughout our recent history, that tyrannical governments tell its people that they are doing what is good and right for the people when their actions are actually for the securing of their unlimited power over the people. It has been said that the narcissist has been invaded with a malignant sense of self-importance above and beyond everything and everyone else. Only they are omniscient. Only they are omnipotent. And only they are omnipresent. They seek to be as God. Christopher Lash, in his 1978 work, The Culture of Narcissism, 
observes, he says, quote, To live for the moment is the prevailing passion of our day. In other words, to live for yourself, not for your predecessors, nor for your posterity. We are fast losing the sense of historical continuity, the sense of belonging in a succession of generations originating in the past and stretching into the future. It is a a waning of the sense of historical time, in particular the erosion of any strong concern for posterity. He goes on to say that the climate in which the narcissist lives is therapeutic, not religious. Saul was all about his own mind's safety, his own mind's therapy, because he wanted to to stroke himself into thinking that he was as God. Now, while the narcissist functions from an idolatrous theological position, that is a certain belief structure which places him at the center of the universe, his posture of self-love is actually therapeutic. Saul's hunger was not for Yahweh. His hunger was not for the commandments of God, the obedience of God. Saul's hunger was for his own personal well-being and praise. His sinful, self-consuming passion faded into the illusion that he was still God's man and that he still had legitimacy as king. More than anything else, Saul, like all narcissists, wanted psychological security. This allowed him to think that whatever he did was good. Whatever he did was acceptable. I'm doing it for the people. He was God's choice. That's what he thought. I'm God's choice. And the people had called me. The people elected me. I'm secure in that knowledge. However, the thing that he wanted most was taken away by God when he was plagued with the spirit of depravity by his own evil mind. Because that's what happens to tyrants. They go mad. Their mind is taken from them because they think they're as God. Now at first, Saul thought that David was not attending the meal as a result of some uncleanness. And of course, that's what he would think. Oh, David, he's unclean. He's not like me. I'm here at the celebration. I'm here at the new moon. We're going to blow the liberation trumpet. And yes, it's the year of Jubilee. And David, well, he's just a scallywag. He's got some uncleanness and that's why he's not here. So we'll give him a pass. Consider... However, when he comes not at the second day to his place, Jonathan answers Saul and says, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, Let me go, I pray thee, for our family hath a sacrifice in the city, and my brother, he commanded me, not you, Saul, my brother just circumvented your law. My brother commanded me, and I'm listening to him, I'm not listening to you. Can you imagine the wrath from this man? For our family hath a sacrifice in the city, and my brother, he hath commanded me to be there. And now I have found favor in thine eyes. Let me get away. If I found favor in thy eyes, I pray thee, and see my brethren. Therefore he cometh not unto the king's table. Now Jonathan is telling him this, to see whether or not, this was a test, to see whether Saul would become angry for Saul's request to return home for the celebration with his family, rather than with the celebration in the king's court. Now, if you remember, Saul had told David that he was no longer to return home to his father and brethren in chapter 18. Saul took David that day and would not let him go anymore to his father's house. 
So in his craftiness, and this is where we see another character trait of Jonathan, in his craftiness, Jonathan fabricates a story where David would be implicated as being disrespectful and even downright rebellious against Saul to see whether Saul would show mercy or wrath. If Saul's demeanor was favorable toward David, if he said, okay, he wants to be with his family, that's fine, then David would be, of course, everything would be fine. But if this fabrication brought Saul to wrath, then Jonathan would know that David was not safe. Consider Saul's tirade. And this is just incredible. The madness of this man to say what he says. And it's hard to understand it in the King James or maybe in any other translation. But this is what he says. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. Not against David, but against Jonathan. Because he knew that he loved David. And he said unto him, Thou son of the perverse woman. Now that's a nice way of saying things. Do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion, and unto the confusion of thy mother's nakedness. Saul was under the impression that his commandment for David not to return home could undermine David's family request. In other words, Saul thought that his mandate, don't go home, was law. Don't go home, don't be family friendly, don't commune with your family because you belong to the state. The modern state believes that its institutional power to mandate anything upon anyone is absolute and can dictate its will over the family sphere, especially when it comes to religious beliefs. Remember, David was not just going to have a party, he was going to celebrate a religious happening. What we see by Saul's response to the idea that family can come before the state and religion supersedes any state mandate, it's wrath. His response is wrath. Saul wants to be the family. Saul wants to be the church. In the same way that the modern state desires to be the family and the state wants to be also the church. This is where we get the term the nanny state and the idea that the state is God marching on earth. Saul wants all power to reside with him the state. He refuses to share his sphere of authority with any other sphere and so he threatens death. And that's what's happening today. The questions that Saul is unwilling to ask are, number one, who really owns the family? And what power do they have within the realm of the culture? Secondly, can the state lord over the religious conscience of man and the dictates of Christ's church? The third question Saul is unwilling to ask is, what obligation does the individual citizen have toward the state? And is that obligation limited or limitless? Still, another question might be raised. By what standard are these questions to be answered? So what does God say concerning the relationship of the state to the family and their religious observances and the family to the state? Certainly God never, never replaces the family or the church for the state. This is fundamental. There are different spheres with different spheres of authority, God over all. David was right. He did the right thing. Not that he was doing that, but that's what was posited. He was right if this was the case that Jonathan posited in honoring his father and his brethren and going to Bethlehem for the religious ceremony. Jonathan wanted to see whether or not his father was going to honor the family. He was simply following 
the fifth commandment. If David was actually going to his family, he was following the fifth commandment of honoring father and mother, especially because that was the only commandment expressly given with generational promise attached. But Saul was not interested in generational continuity for the, for the son of Jesse. He was interested in generational continuity for Saul the Benjamite. Notice, Paul says this, Ephesians 6, verse 2, Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. A generational promise. Notice how God says the family, the foundation of the culture, the foundation of the state, the foundation of the church. Since God works through families, the promise was generational blessedness if, and it's a big if, a big if, if the family remained faithful and obedient to their commission, as a result of his tyrannical narcissism, Saul completely ignored what God had established concerning parental authority, the institution of the family unit, and the importance of religion as a fundamental foundation of culture. He failed to understand what covenant obligations were all about and how they were binding. He thought that he was due omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotent, and worship. So, What are the specifics of family authority which God gives to parents and its relation to religion? Well, the Reverend Ray Sutton explains it this way. He says, quote, God tells parents to be fruitful, multiply and subdue the earth. Parents have the authority to determine how many children they will have and to utilize them, notice, to utilize them to bring the world under the dominion of Christ. That's your purpose, father. That's your purpose, mother. Any attempt on the part of the state to limit the number of children is actually a direct effort to stop the dominion of Christ. Parents, and I submit to you that there may be a very sinister reason why we are having our own government mandate certain vaccinations against the conscience of the people of America. Could it be to sterilize? Could it be To limit, could it be so wicked? Let's remember that the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? I can tell you this during the days of prohibition. The government of the United States poisoned the beer and some of the alcohol so that people would die drinking the alcohol so that people would stop and obey the law of prohibition. That's the history of America the land that we love, the land that the Puritans came over to establish as a city of a hill, on a hill, in the, in the dominion of Christ and for the dominion of Christ. He continues. Sutton continues. Parents, not the state, represent the Lord to their children. Because of this high calling given to parents, they are to disciple their children. We normally think of disciple or discipline only in a negative light. But in the book of Proverbs, discipline is instructional. That is, it is positive as well as correctional. Parents also have the authority to educate their children, which God has entrusted to them. Parents are simply trustees of what belongs to God. The children do not belong to them, nor do they belong to the state. They belong to God. God has delegated certain authority for parents to fulfill the trusteeship delegated to them. If the state interferes, God will, notice, God will deal with the state. End quote. 
Another point Sutton makes is that children are God's heritage. They are the family's inheritance for the future kingdom work. Therefore, it is the trusty family that owns God's inheritance, not the state. Since the family is God's way of securing and structuring the future, Saul was furious that he had lost his control, not only upon David, but upon the future of his kingdom. Sutton adds this, he says, Children of believers are to be placed in the covenant and trained in the ways of the covenant. God owns the future through the principle of generational expansion of the faith. That is why the state tries to curb this kind of growth any way that it can. For this reason, we need to be self-conscious about building for the future through our children. Sutton points out the reason why I am so vehement about an explicitly Christocentric education under the direct supervision of the family unit. Any departure from direct parental oversight and the education of children and the raising and the discipline and the discipleship of children is a violation of the covenant obligation and a threat to the future of Christendom. How many churches have given over their heritage, those who believe themselves to be Christian, to the government God-hating school education system? Christian parents should be thinking about building a covenant dynasty through their children for the advancement of God's kingdom and his crown rights, not giving them over for, for eight hours a day and hope with a one-hour Bible study on Sunday to direct them into the ways of God. It's just not going to happen. You cannot establish the kingdom of God through any other venue but the home with the church standing alongside while Christian schools seems to be an option, they still fall short of the covenant obligation laid upon parents in Deuteronomy 6. You see, what's happening here in the narrative of Israel under Saul is that Saul had lost all control. And he knew it. And his retaliation was wrathful murder. But note, not only does Saul seek David's life, he indicts Jonathan and Jonathan's mother, his own wife. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said unto him, Thou son of the perverse, rebellious woman, do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion and unto the confusion of thy mother's nakedness. As I said before, this is the most vicious language, wicked language against both Jonathan and his mother. The Reverend Scott observes this. He says, The terms used by Saul seem to contain the most scurrilous abuse which the language afforded, especially implying that Jonathan proved himself not to be his son and that he disgraced his mother by taking David's part against him. First, Saul calls Jonathan the son of a perverted and rebellious woman. Secondly, Saul refuses to call David by name and refers to him as the son of Jesse, which was a derogatory title since Jesse was of a lower social class. And this also shows Saul's contempt for Jesse since he had to give Jesse, if you remember, because David was able to kill Goliath, his father would have a total tax exemption. He would be given riches and what seemed to be also land gifts for David's bravery. And Saul was angry because he had to do that, and Jesse was the lowlife. Thirdly, Saul's narcissism is fleshed out here, since he is furious against Jonathan for choosing David over his own father, who, if you remember, wanted Jonathan killed not long before over nothing. Here again, Saul is clueless as to the weight of covenant obligations. Now, what we must 
we must understand this overreaching, tyrannical idea of, of Saul. He was, he was overreaching. He was so tyrannical. And this is what the tyrannical state does. They overreach. And they come against the covenant obligation, which is given to the family alone. The state is under covenant obligation as well. They're under a contractual agreement that cannot be broken without damning consequences. And so Saul is bringing damnation upon himself. Now, Jonathan had, had entered into a covenant together with, with David, which was never to be broken. It was a blood covenant. And that's what, what Saul didn't understand. He didn't understand that this was a, a, a blood covenant. And surely that Jonathan had to, to agree with David and, and protect David. If Jonathan broke his oath to David, David then, if you remember, could in turn break his oath to Jonathan, which would endanger Jonathan's entire bloodline. And Jonathan could not swear an oath uh, with Saul, since Saul was an unrepentant un- and wicked, uh, murderous tyrant. So he swore an oath with David, because he wanted his lineage protected. Fourthly, Saul says that Jonathan's allegiance to David brought upon him confusion and the confusion of, quote, his mother's nakedness. In Saul's insanity, he not only indicts Jonathan for not being his son, but he indicts Jonathan's mother for being an adulteress. But the accusation goes far more than just the form of adultery. Saul's actual wording when he uses thy mother's nakedness, exposing thy mother's nakedness, the uncovering of the woman's nakedness, is actually accusing Jonathan for having incestuous relations with his mother, Saul's wife. So whenever the term uncovering a woman's nakedness is used, in this case, the phrase confusion of thy mother's nakedness, it indicates and insinuates incest. This is the most horrible language ever. And that's how insane Saul is becoming. He explodes in the most vile manner, accusing everyone of some of the most reprehensible sins that he could imagine. And after this explosion, Saul lets on as to another reason why he's so angry in verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the ground, thou shalt not be established nor thy kingdom. In other words, you're going to be destroyed. Wherefore now send and fetch him unto me, for he shall surely die. So Saul is worried about his legacy through Jonathan. Jonathan is worried about his legacy through Jonathan, not Saul's legacy. So really what Saul is worried about was his dynasty. He is secretly coveting a legacy, a dynastic legacy with Jonathan taking over after his death. But this was not about Jonathan. This was not about Jonathan at all. It was all about Saul. Somewhere, perhaps in the deeper part of its warped mind, Saul might have been hoping to reestablish the honor of his tribe of Benjamin and become not only king and the dynastic ruler, but a man who would roll back the reproach that his brethren had brought upon themselves in the past. This was not to be the case, for God will not have a man create a dynasty, for that dynasty would be reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ, anticipated by David the king. Jonathan then shoots back at his father by asking for any justification for David's death. Notice what he says, verse 32. And Jonathan answered Saul his father and said unto him, and you've got to, you've got to love Jonathan for this. He's standing against his father respectfully, but asking him, what sin has the man committed? Wherefore shall he be slain? What has he done? Show me the law that he has broken. So not able to give a suitable answer, 
Saul explodes. And that's what happens when they can't logically argue their case. They explode. They lose their patience. I'm losing my patience with you, Jonathan. Let's just get him here and kill him. We want him to bow under our authority. So not able to give a suitable answer, Saul explodes in anger and then tries to kill Jonathan. And that's what happens with tyrants. They answer everything that they cannot answer with a death blow. And Saul cast a javelin at him to smite him, whereby Jonathan knew that it was determined of his father to slay David. And that is what wicked men do when challenged to justify their policies. They answer with violence. They answer with mandates. They answer with dictates. They answer just as a tyrant would answer. So Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and did eat no meat the second day of the month. for He was grieved for David because his father had done him shame. We will continue next time when we return to the book of 1 Samuel when we learn of the sad parting of these two men who truly loved each other in Christ. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.